It's almost Valentine's Day. Let Sam paint you a picture. The lights are dimmed. You've returned from a decadent meal. You're in front of a roaring fire on a luxurious bearskin rug, and you're about to make whoopee. It's only then you realize there is no lube in your whole house. How vivid. Head to adamandeve.com for 50% off almost any item and free shipping with special code HORROR, H-O-R-R-O-R. Happy Valentine's Day. Hello, everybody. Hey, folks. Welcome to another exciting episode of I'm Horrified. I'm Horrified. Maybe our most exciting episode yet because we're using our new fancy microphone today. You guys, she's so glamorous. She's so glamorous. She's got a big, like, fancy machine arm. I love her. Let's name her. She looks like a something glamorous in old Hollywood, like a Gloria. I like a Gloria. Gloria Vanderbilt microphone. Yeah. Glow for short. Glow. Let's call her Glow. I love that. So we're recording on Glow today. Let I us know her. if you hear a difference. Yeah. Oh my God. She's so beautiful. Yeah. I don't even care if you hear a difference because I just like looking at her. I just feel more professional. <laughs> um, we'll post some pics on, on Twitter of her gorgeousness. But we're back. We're back from PodCon officially. Yeah. We had an amazing time at PodCon. We're going to release a mini-sode. Um, about our adventures at PodCon yes. in just a couple of days on Wednesday. Baby's first mini-sode. We're going to have it. We're going to do it. So we won't talk too much about it right now, but keep yeah. your eye on your feed for that. We had a blast. It was so fun, you We'll guys. talk about it soon. Yes. But Sam, what are you going to talk about today? Today I'm going to talk about something a lot less fun than PodCon, and it's the Boston busing crisis. Yes, that is a lot less fun than PodCon. It really is. Yeah, close to our Boston hearts. Yes. Um, and I'm going to talk about the Paris Syndrome. I'm so curious about what this is. I, I have thought no that concept. I told you offhandedly. You really didn't. All right, well. Because my best guess is it's just you want to eat a lot of baguettes. We're going to just marinate in the mystery <laughs> of it until we get there. Okay. So, um... So let's do this. Yeah, let's do this. And we'll start with mine, which is bad, you guys. All right. So I have lived in Boston for about seven and a half years now, mm-hmm. which is such a long time. Uh, and I do truly love living here. Like, we've got the Freedom Trail. We've got the Duck Boats. We've got the Red Sox. All the winning sports teams. We've got Kitar Bear and Google Kitar Bear, if you don't know him, because he's the best part about living in Boston. National hero. National uh, icon and star, Kitar Bear. But... Boston is, like, a very old city. It is not perfect. Uh, And I think the most uh, horrifying red mark on Boston's ledger is the busing crisis of the 70s and 80s. Yep. And the craziest thing is I didn't even really learn about this until a couple years ago. Allie, maybe you did because you went to middle and high school in Massachusetts. Yeah, we learned about it a little bit. Yeah. But it's, like, such the shittiest part of Boston's history. Uh, So bad. What a bummer. And I didn't know anything about it. So um, we might think we live in a liberal utopia, but turns out we suck bad. Yeah, Boston's hella racist. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. We'll get into this later, but there there was a really great expose by the Boston Globe Spotlight team. Mm -hmm. You will know them from Spotlight. Love it. uh, The movie. Uh, So they handled the abuse scandal in the Catholic Church many years ago in the the early 2000s. And um, they, they released a long sort of investigation expose on systematic racism in Boston, which is fantastic. Cannot yeah. cannot recommend it highly enough. But this is, like, the roots of a lot of that. Yeah, it really is. And the amount that, like, it still impacts Boston's public schools was wild to me. So this whole time you've probably been like, Sam, what is this thing you're talking about? So here we go. It's 1965. We're still working on civil rights. 
and yeah, we're here we're, in Boston. We're getting there, I suppose. We're working on it. We haven't fixed racism yet. Um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> so in 1965, the Massachusetts General Court passed a piece, of, a piece of legislation called the Racial Imbalance Act. And this act made it made the segregation of public schools illegal in Massachusetts. And it was actually the first of its kind in the United States, to which I'm like, there's the liberal utopia I know so well. Yeah, you started out good. <laughs> you were really trying to make an effort. Uh, and so this act states that racial imbalance shall be deemed to exist where the percent of non-white students in any public school is in excess of 50% of the total number of students in such a school. So if it's more than half non-white students, that's a segregated school. Got it. Basically. And these racially imbalanced schools were required to desegregate or risk losing their state educational funding, which feels fair. I guess so. Uh, I mean, this all sounds like, okay, good idea, <laughs> but I feel like in practice it's going to go shitty. Is yeah, that that's, right? the execution's going to be a lot of this. Uh, so this was a lot of schools. Uh, in a report released in March 1965, it revealed 55 schools in Massachusetts were racially imbalanced, and 44 of those were in the city of Boston. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority are in are, are Boston public schools. And the Boston School Committee was told that the complete integration of Boston public schools needed to occur before September of 1966. So like within a year. They were like, desegregate the schools. Yeah, that's a lot of, like, disturbance. Yes. To students, I'm sure. Yeah, and on this one, I kind of blame, like, the people who passed this law. Because they passed a not very popular law, which, I mean, it should have been, but it wasn't. And there was no assurance of, like, financial aid from the government to do this. It was just, like, do it. Yeah, there was no, like, suburban cooperation in accepting, like, African-American students from Boston or the schools would lose funding, like... Just there was no incentive to comply and no one wanted to do it because turns out people are racist. Yeah. And the act, this act like just didn't take that into account. It was like, and everyone will be fine with this. Yeah. It's like, what? Because laws reflect social (laughs) culture, of course. And so uh, for years, the Boston School Committee just didn't. Great. Uh, This act was passed in 1965 and they just did not make any effort. They did not form any plans. Like, I thought I was good at procrastinating, but this committee has me beat. And finally, in 1972, so seven years after the Boston school system was supposed to be totally integrated. They like, started? Uh, no, finally, the NAACP filed a class action lawsuit against the Boston school committee on behalf of 14 parents and 44 children alleging the segregation in the Bostic public schools, which there were. Good for them. So it wasn't even like they were like, oh, okay, we'll finally get on this. It's the 70s. We have really seen the yeah. error of it's our the ways. people of color mobilized yeah, to exactly. make this happen. <laughs> exactly. And so this was in the court system for two years until Judge W. Arthur Garrity Jr., uh, who I'm going to refer to as like Art and Artie, Judge G. Just picturing Buddy Garrity. Yeah, a lot like that. I'm picturing Arthur the Aardvark. Mm, mm-hmm. Continue. Either way you picture him, but only one of those two ways. Don't <laughs> go outside the lines on this one, you guys. Don't just picture him as a man. Uh, so he's at the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts, and he rules that there is a reoccurring pattern of racial discrimination in the operation of Boston Public Schools, which, duh, but thank you, Arthur, for making it official. Yeah, what a shock. I know. <laughs> yeah, just bring out that accent as much as you can. Yeah, this is very natural. 
so his rulings found that the schools were unconstitutionally segregated and required the in- the implementation of the state's Racial Imbalance Act, which, again, had gone through in 1965. So he's like, you know, like 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, so he's like, for real, you guys, you have to do this. Um, and basically it's that any school that's more than 50% non-white has to be balanced according to race. And not only that, but Artie was like, we're doing busing to fix it. And the Massachusetts Board of Education already wrote the plan so you can't procrastinate on it. And I personally am going to oversee it. Perfect. So this is happening. You said busing. What is, what does that mean? So busing just means... That they are taking students who go to one Boston public school that is primarily one race, and they are quite literally putting them on a school bus and busing them to a different school that is primarily a different race. And they would do that with both black and white children. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. So it would be black students going to majority white schools and white students going to majority black schools. Yeah, which is, like, the way a robot would solve racism. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, let's just... <laughs> Mix them all up. Have it. Even it out. Perfect. We're good. So this is a really radical busing plan that he's putting forward, too. It's not just, like, yeah, it'll be, like, a school or two. We'll figure it out. It's, like, it affects the entire city. And most especially, it affects the extremely racially divided blue-collar neighborhoods. Because everyone on freaking Beacon Hill was already sending their kids to private school. Mm -hmm. So it really didn't impact them. So it was predominantly the Irish-American neighborhoods of West Roxbury, Roslindale, Hyde Park, and Charlestown, and South Boston, which is going to come up a lot in this story. The predominantly Italian-American neighborhood of the North End. And the predominantly black neighborhoods of Roxbury, Mattapan, and the South End. Uh, and also the neighborhood of Dorchester, which was kind of mixed, but also segregated, uh, which is just fun. Yeah. It was somehow both. Dorchester's interesting. But, like, I think that's a really interesting aspect of this story is, like, how much class was, like, a really big part of this boiling point that right. got hit. Right, Um, For example, just to pick a bone with Judge Garrity, he decided the entire junior class from the mostly poor white South Boston High School would be bused to Roxbury High School, a predominantly black high school. And it was also like, and half the sophomores from each school are going to attend the other, and the seniors get to decide. But, like, historians and political commentators have looked back, and they've been like, South Boston High School and Roxbury High School were generally regarded as the two worst schools in Boston. So there's no clear educational purpose to why you would jumble them up. Because the idea of busing was... These schools are segregated, so certain schools have better resources. Right. So we want to bust those kids who don't get those resources to the schools that have them. But this was just, like, two equally shitty schools. Yeah. So, like, political commentators now are like, that specific choice to just mix those two schools up? Well, because people were just trying to, like, tick a box, clearly. Yeah. That's very clear. Yeah. Like, well, we have to do this thing, so let's just do it. Exactly. So that just made me laugh when, like, it was a lot of people being like, I don't know why he did this specifically. (laughs) We also are confused. (laughs) This had no clear educational uh, purpose. It was just going to make people mad. So with Garrity at the helm, busing commences. Um, Allie, you've lived in and around this wonderful city your whole life. Yeah, I have. Do you think that the angry parents of Southie just accepted that this was happening? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they were really cool with it. Yeah, no, they rioted. (laughs) 
Yeah, there's nothing like angry racist white Bostonians. Yeah. They'll give like Southern racists the run for their money, honestly. For real. For real, for real. So first there was an organization called Restore Our Alienated Rights. Wow. Or ROAR. Yikes. <laughs> um, and it was formed by Boston School Committee chairwoman Louise Day Hicks. Yeah, who was also the head of the cheerleading team, which is how she came up with that roar thing. <laughs> sure she did. But that's just awful to me because, like, the Boston School Committee were the ones who were supposed to be desegregating everything before that judge stepped in. And she is the chairwoman of that committee. And she's like, I'm forming this new organization <sighs> that is against the desegregation busing. So they were using tactics modeled on the civil rights movement, which fuck you guys for serious. Uh, so they were leading marches in Charlestown and South Boston. They were staging public prayers and sit-ins of school buildings and government offices. They were protesting at the homes of prominent Bostonians. They were holding mock funerals. And they even had a small march on Washington, D.C. Oh, my God. And here's the worst thing they did. They made up a song uh, with new lyrics to the tune of My Way by Frank Sinatra. Uh, And the lyrics were like, tonight, let us unite and do it Roar's way. And that's maybe the thing I hate most of all, is that they use that shitty fucking song. (laughs) I can't wrap my head around this, but I also totally can. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. They'd be like, oh, the worst Frank Sinatra song. That's what I'm going to use. And maybe this is a hot take, but I do not like my way. No, I don't either. I don't think it's that good of a song. I don't either. Both artistically and in message. I think we both can have a moment of self-reflection because, I, as we've stated before, we're both white cis yes. women. So, like, we have obviously not been on the receiving end, but definitely have observed, like, when white affluent people don't get what they want, or just yes. white people in general, like, when people who usually get everything they want don't get what they want, you know, a, mi- a small microcosm of that is, like, a white lady who's told to, like, wait a second at a restaurant yeah. and then goes, like full I want to speak crazy. to your manager. I want to speak to your manager. That's like a little memified version of it, but like when people who usually get what they want don't get what they want, they freak the fuck out. They really really yeah. do. This is that. This is exactly <laughs> that. So, that's the first thing they do. But once it becomes clear that busing is going to happen regardless of this movement, right. roar kind of down, dies down and the violence begins. So, um, Southie, uh, South Boston is ground zero for, like, anti-busing rage. And hundreds of white demonstrators, children and their parents, pelted a caravan of 20 school buses carrying students from the nearly all-black Roxbury to all-white South Boston. The police there were literally wearing riot gear just to, like, welcome these school buses to school. So, um, this next part, a lot of these quotes I'm taking from a WBUR story, which has done some really great research into, like, this time period in Boston. Right. And WBUR is our local NPR affiliate. And please support your local NPR affiliate. Because I love WBUR. Yeah. Just WGBH. I love it all. NPR is doing good-ass work no matter what city you're in. Yes, they are. For real, support them. So, uh, Jean McGuire, who was a bus safety monitor, recalled, quote, I remember riding the buses to protect the kids going up to South Boston High School and the brick through the window. Signs hanging out the building saying, N-word go home, picture of monkeys, the words, the spit. People just felt it was all right to attack children. Oh, God, that's horrible. I know. And one of those children was then 14-year-old Regina Williams. And Regina, like, was remembering the feelings of the first day, quote, I had no idea what to expect with this busing thing. I didn't know anything about South Boston. I didn't know anything about, you know, they didn't like us. 
I didn't know anything that was in store for us. But we got there and it was like a war zone. I came back and I told my mom, and I'll never forget, I said, Ma, I am not going back to that school unless I have a gun. At 14 years old, I am not going back to that school. Like, imagine feeling that you were in the right to scare a 14-year-old girl so badly. A child. Like, I am so horrified that that is something that these people felt right to do. But that's also what the othering of people who aren't like you can do. Like, you don't, you can't empathize with them as children anymore because you've othered them so greatly as just being, like, this scary outside force. Yeah. And also, you know, to really bring it home, like, that rage of power, Mm -hmm. which is a rage of whiteness. You know what I mean? This feeling that how dare they, you know, do this to us. Mm -hmm. And that incomprehensibility of how dare you strip me of this right that I have, you know, given by God or whomever, then you start justifying all this crazy shit. Yeah. It's like you can justify throwing a brick at a child. Yeah. Because it's like people just lose their goddamn minds because they're like, well, if if this can be taken away, away from me yeah. and I'm me, yeah. then none of the rules apply. And it's like, yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And it's like the people on this bus are my enemies, but they're not yeah. your enemies. They're children. Yeah, children who are trying to, to go to school. And it reminds me a lot of um, The Little Rock Nine, mm-hmm. but that was like a decade beforehand. So yeah. it's like, great, we've made no strides. <laughs> yeah. Boston uh, took a while. Took a minute. Took many, many years. Many years. Still, it's not really done. Uh, So not only is this happening, but a lot of students are skipping school altogether. Of about 4,000 students enrolled in South Boston High, about 400 showed up that day. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. And the violence continued, and the then mayor, Kevin White, had to implement a curfew and ban crowds near the school. Uh, Police were outnumbering protesters, and the protesters were still feeling bold enough to be dangerous. So then law enforcement tactics had to get toughened up and what started out as an anti-busing problem soon grew into like anti-police sentiment because the police were having to be harder on all these protesters because they right. wouldn't go away. So many of the police officers there were Irish and from Southie and one of them whose name is Francis Mickey Roche and who later was like the police commissioner. So good for Mickey. Uh, he remembered the anger there even against him who he was from the neighborhood And he said, quote, I had never seen that kind of anger in my life, which like, let's just stop there for a Boston police officer to say he had never seen that kind of anger. They've seen some shit. They've seen some angry people. So that's just crazy in its own. Back to the quote. It was so ugly. These are women and people who were probably my mother's age and they were screaming, Mickey, you got to quit. You got to quit. They picked me out because they knew me. I was a South Boston boy. I grew up in Southie. And I said, I'm just standing here. I said, I'm assigned to this. I have five children. I love my profession. I don't wish you any harm, but I'm here to make sure that nobody gets hurt. So like that, the rage was just growing and hitting like any person that could be blamed including people that were from the neighborhood. Yeah, but probably inordinately towards people of color, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was it was all on the people yeah. of color, and then it grew it's even ricocheting beyond. ricocheting everywhere. Exactly. And still the violence keeps escalating. So in one case, uh, attorney Theodore Landsmark was attacked and bloodied by a group of white teenagers as he exited the Boston City Hall. 
one of the attackers attacked Landsmark with an American flag. And there's a photo of this called The Soiling of Old Glory, which was taken by a man named Stanley Foreman for the Boston Herald American. And it later won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news photography in 1977. Um, and we'll tweet this, but I just want to show Allie. Here's the photo. So this is the lawyer. Oh, my God. And this kid's a teenager. And it the the man who was getting attacked, um, Theodore Landsmark, he said that the teenager was trying to, like, hit him with it. He wasn't trying to impale him with the flag. But in the photo, it fully looks... It looks like he's trying to murder him. Like he's trying to yeah. impale him on a flag, which is craziness. But the the guy has said, I don't think that's... He was just trying to hit me, which was bad. I didn't want that either. Yeah. But, um, in a retaliatory incident two weeks later, black teenagers in Roxbury threw rocks at auto mechanic Richard Polite's car and caused him to crash. The attackers then dragged him out and crushed his skull with a nearby paving stone. Oh, my God. When the police arrived, the man was surrounded by a crowd of 100 chanting, let him die, while lying in a coma from which he never recovered. So, like, there's just violence on every side. And anytime one thing happens, another retaliatory incident happens. And then another retaliatory incident happens. Like, it's just getting out of control. Um, There was another instance in South Boston High School where um, a white teenager was stabbed nearly to death by a black teenager, and then the community's white residents mobbed the school, trapping all the black students inside. Oh, God. So the school was forced to close for a full month after the stabbing, and when it opened again, fun fact, it was actually one of the first high schools to install metal detectors. Which, great, what a beautiful, distinguished honor. Yeah, good thing to have in a school. Yeah. Um, and then also, the, so the, there were about 400 students attending at that time, and it was guarded at all times by 500 police officers. So more police officers were at this high school than students getting an education. Yeah, this is the future liberals want. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, uh, the then governor, Francis Sargent, put the National Guard on alert, and state police were, ca- were called in, and they would remain on duty in Boston for the next three years. So it's not like this calmed down in a couple months. Yeah. I know it lasted a, a long time. Yeah. But I did not have any idea the extent of violence yeah. that occurred. It was crazy. I knew people were protesting, but I didn't know how much violence there was. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, President Gerald Ford refused to mobilize U.S. Marshals, saying it was up to federal courts judges to decide to enforce the desegregation order. And he said the court decision in that case, in my judgment, was not the best solution to, for quality education in Boston. Thanks, Jer. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, thanks a lot. So the the thing that I think sometimes gets lost in just like, sometimes when things are so horrifying, they just kind of like wash over you and you're like, right. it's all really bad. Yes, I see that it's bad. This was a bad thing that yes. happened. But something that sometimes gets lost, I think, is the impact on the students, the people the legislation was literally trying to help. Mm-hmm. So, like, remember Regina Williams, who told her mom she wouldn't go back to school without a gun? So I didn't tell you her whole quote. Oh. Here's the rest of her quote. Quote, I just quit. I quit school. I had all this time on my hands. And what happened from there? You end up doing drugs. You end up getting pregnant out of wedlock because there was nothing to do. You didn't have to go to school. They didn't have attendance. They didn't monitor you if you went to school. It was your choice. Either you go to school and get your education and fight for it, or you stay home and be safe and make the wrong decisions or right decisions. All these things that affected me goes back to busing. Lack of education, lack of basic training and reading, lack of basic writing. It's embarrassing. It's pathetic. You feel cheated. 
You don't want to tell anyone you never learned how to write because no one taught you. That is horrible. It's a full, like, I can't imagine. Literally, it's so awful. Yeah. And this poor girl was so scared by, like, the violent protesters that she quit school. Yeah. It undermined this woman's life. Yeah. And she later, amazing Regina, she got her GED later in life. So, like, good for her. That's incredible. But just the idea that, like, there could be so much rage about this that you would have, like, even one student, which she was Mm -hmm. by far not the only one, decide to fully quit rather than face it. It's, like, the most horrifying legacy of Boston's desegregation busing crisis. Like, a generation of, again, largely poor children were robbed of an education and forced to witness the very worst bits of humanity. Yeah. So, Judge Garrity turned control of busing back over to the Boston School Committee in 1985, but in a lot of ways, the damage was done. In the first five years of desegregation, the parents of 30,000 of the children in Boston public schools, mostly middle class and white, took their kids out of the city school system and left Boston for the suburbs, also known as white flight. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So today... Half the population of Boston is white, but only 14% of its students are white. Mm-hmm. And, like, experts are honestly divided whether or not busing helped or hurt. And I read a couple different people. Like, the the woman who um, was one of the bus monitors on that first day, she's like, it really sucked, but it was a really important step for equality. It was just shaking things up. It was awful, but it was a step we had to take. And then there are other people who are like, we should have just pumped money into all the schools to give them all better, you know, access to better things, yeah. better equipment. There's a lot of, it, it's really complicated, that yeah. kind of stuff. It really, really is. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's not complicated. It's like, if you're poor and you have less resources, that is ethically wrong. Yeah. Um, but how to allocate that kind of stuff, you know, there's a lot of, um divisiveness around charter mm-hmm. and around you know a lot of a lot of different ways that people have attempted to kickstart schools within city limits and stuff like that and yeah. it's it's really hard to make sure that every kid has everything that they deserve because yeah. it's it seems impossible yeah and i wish that like today we could be like and, and here's, here's how we fix yeah, it yeah, here's no. the way that we're going to permanently desegregate all schools in america nope. like there's just not a good easy way yeah and even now, I think it's it's very apparent. Like, I um, have two uh, little cousins whom I love very, very much who live in the south end of Boston with, um, you know, my family members. And they go to public school mm-hmm. in the south end. And they are definitely in the minority as white children. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're getting a wonderful education. And their, their mother is incredibly involved in the school systems. Mm-hmm. And it's this incredible community. But it definitely is, I think, at times you know, an uphill battle to be in a public school in Boston city limits. And I think, and I had babysat and nannied around the South End a lot for other white children. Mm -hmm. They were not in public school. No. (laughs) Let me tell you that. And so that's something that contributes to that, you know, frustration and feeling of, you know, current segregation and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, there's been a lot of conversation recently with current mayor, Marty Walsh, who um, is okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say about Marty. Uh, Marty, come on the podcast. Yeah. Um, he was nice to me the one time I met him. Yeah, no, he's... But I don't know. A fairly good mayor with a lot. I mean, it's hard to be a mayor of a city, I suppose. But he's been trying to implement some very controversial 
programs and funding for Boston Public Schools recently that would involve shutting down quite a lot of the high schools and Mm. middle schools for a period of time, which people are not fans of. But the idea is to pump more money into them, like millions of dollars, if Mm -hmm. not more than that. Um, So that's good, I guess. People people have a lot of different thoughts about it. Yeah. Look that up. It's interesting. Yeah, look that up. <laughs> um, look up all the stories of people who, like, were students during mm-hmm. this, you we'll, know, the we'll prime time of busing. Yeah, but we'll, we'll be link to the first stories. Um, to the stories that I read on this uh, episode. But, yeah, it's, I, like, I just left it feeling like, ugh, like, they're, they were tr- kind of trying to do something good, but they didn't put enough thought into it. Yeah. And so it negatively impacted a lot of kids. Yep. And also racism. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm horrified. I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. And I def- it's really obvious to see the echoes of that in current public education, for yeah. sure, which is really disheartening yeah. and very difficult. Yeah. But And that's re- something that I didn't realize at first was, like, how much that moment of history and specifically, like, the white flight of thousands of white families from Boston to the suburbs, like, really impacted the way Boston school works today, this minute. Yeah, it's a really important piece, I think, of our history. And Boston was also, I think, sort of infamously voted a couple of years ago. I don't remember what this was through, but, like, the least welcoming city to um, Black individuals. And Mm. it's, like, people were, I think in Boston, were really defensive about that. Like, oh, we're so progressive, we're so liberal. And it's, like, but what does that matter? You know what yeah. I mean? It, it We have this history and we do have this aggression and, you know, where where is that coming from rather than kind of looking at ourselves and being like, how can we do better? How, you know, how is this progressive facade really a lie in a lot of ways? How can we investigate that? People just tend to get defensive and yeah. that's um, one of the many problems with whiteness, which we will continue to investigate. Yeah. Um, to the best of our ability as best of our white ability. people. Um, and I think I we, we encourage uh, the fellow listeners who are not people of color to do the same. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why we decide to talk about these kinds of things. Because, you know, as much as that, it, I, I think people think about busing in terms of civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is part of yeah, civil rights absolutely. in Boston, for sure. Um, but I think it's it should also be a hard investigation of whiteness and, yeah. and whiteness in America. Mm-hmm. That's something that we need to take a really long hard look at consistently always so thank you for bringing your research absolutely really well done so i appreciate it thank you do you want to talk about something stupid (laughs) yeah what i would love now is just to forget uh for one moment that (laughs) life sucks so bad and let's talk about something uh dumb that again i assume has to do with baguettes well so it is a little bit sad and some people are negatively affected by it but it's not it's not so bad that their lives are, like, ruined. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think you'll kind of see where we're getting with this. So, like, I don't want to... I don't want to sort of pass over the suffering of people who are suffering with Paris Syndrome, but it doesn't seem to ruin your life. It doesn't <laughs> seem to last very long. Let me explain why. So I have to start with a thank you to our lovely listener on Twitter, at MafeSakara1, I don't know how to pronounce it, Ooh. who recommended this topic to us. It is so on brand for us, so uh, you get us, and thank you very much. Thank you. This topic officially and medically begins in the late 1980s with a doctor named Hiroaka Ota, who was a Japanese doctor um, of psychology working in Paris. 
and Dr. Oda began noticing a collection of symptoms occurring almost exclusively in his Japanese patients who were visiting from Japan. So not like expats, but tourists from Japan. Interesting. Um, so between 1988 and 2004, he conducted a study on about 70 of his patients who were exhibiting these strange symptoms. Um, a quasi-reputable site, IFL Science, described it this way. This phenomenon is only reported in the French capital, more or less only among Japanese tourists. Seemingly out of the blue, the distressed visitors can reportedly experience intense dizziness, sweating, increased heart rate, psychosis, hallucinations, depersonalization, derealization, and delusions of persecution. But only Japanese tourists in Paris. Yes. Are experiencing those symptoms. So we go on. So these symptoms were so severe that they were leading to hospitalization. Oh my so like God. Things like depersonalization and derealization is something that a lot of people with mental illnesses can struggle with. And it's a very scary thing. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you know, you don't have a grip on reality a lot of the time. And it can be a very upsetting experience. Um, so I don't want to diminish that. That's Those are really severe symptoms. Um, and so at first, Dr. Ota kind of chalked it up to exhaustion and dehydration from jet lag, extremely long travel times. I mean, it's it's 12 hours to yeah. get to Paris. And that's if you go direct. So it's an extremely long flight. But then he started realizing, you know, there are plenty of countries that are far away mm-hmm. from Paris by plane. And he was seeing this almost exclusively in Japanese tourists. And he was Japanese, so he was kind of noticing, yeah. like, what's what's happening here? So, before we answer this medical mystery, there are a few things that we should know. First, about six million Japanese citizens visit France every year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's based on a study from 2017. It could be more or less now in 2019, probably more. The other thing that's important to realize is that Japan has had a long-standing affinity with French culture for decades now. So this is not strictly a Japanese trait, obviously. I mean, America mm-hmm. loves France. Everybody loves France, right? Like, Paris is the embodiment of this... Old world romantic. Yeah, this Euro-Western centricity, um, romantic Euro- European fantasy. And, like, even I growing up, like, when you think of gorgeous European luxury, what you're thinking of is Paris. It's Paris, yeah. So the clothes, the food, glamour, Devil Wears Prada, we get it. Mm-hmm. Prada's Italian, I suppose. But, you know, it's like Italy and Paris. Like, that's like what you think of as yes, very beauty, true. yes, luxury. I was trying to think of a French brand, but I couldn't think of one. Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton! The Devil Wears Chanel. Louis Vuitton! <laughs> the Devil Wears Louis Vuitton. Um, so in Japan, this Franco-centricity, I suppose, mm-hmm. is heightened in many ways. There are, you know lots of sort of pockets of culture that are obsessed with French-style cafes and, like, real or knockoff Chanel and Louis Vuitton bags. And a lot of Japanese fashion has been influenced by Parisian street style. And again, like, that's not not common, but mm-hmm. it, it can be kind of heightened there. And, you know, Japanese street style is its own thing. So yeah. there is this, you know, French influence in a lot of sort of pockets of it. And a lot of people have this affinity for French culture. Um, and, I mean, this isn't really shocking because... There are a lot of people living in Japan, and Paris is, like, a top tourist destination for, like, everyone in the world. It's like Disney and Paris. That's mm-hmm. the two places that people dream of going. You want to get proposed to there. It's, like, the top honeymoon destination. Whatever. Um, and I should... I feel like I should investigate this with Disney as well, because it's... It really does, like, rope people in with this emotional pull. There's, like, this emotional promise 
of happiness. And yeah. there's so many girls in my feed who are like way too obsessed with Disney. <laughs> Is that a thing? I think that I might think be. we should talk about this at some point. Like like people who are on my feed, like they got married at Disney, they got proposed to at Disney. Yeah. That's every vacation they take. They're going on their honeymoon you there know, and they're winning wearing the pins. They're like just their whole Instagram is just all their Disney stuff. Yeah. And I'm like Okay, like, is this a good personality? Because it's still a brand. That's a little concerning <laughs> to me. We're getting off track. Um, but I think it I think it has something to do with it. Yeah. I stand by it. I, I stand that. by this tangent. Um, because Paris culturally has this same kind of promise of glamour and perfection and romance. Like a huge it's like the romance capital of the world. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be so romantic and luxury. And in mu- in movies, it's like unearthly beautiful. So we have both been wildly lucky in our lives. Yes, And true. we have both been to Paris. Yes. Sam, what were your impressions of Paris? I thought it was cool. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went when I was, like, 14. It's hard um, to remember things when you're 14. That's true. And I went, like, I was there, like, with my mom and dad. So it wasn't like I was there on a romantic Romance. vacation. <laughs> um, but I remember it being very cool. I remember really liking all the architecture. The Louvre was ginormous. That made me anxious, that place. It was ginormous. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I... I've been a couple of times and I absolutely love it. And I think, I think I love it for really insufferable hipster reasons mm-hmm. because like I, A, am very, and a very anxious person. So I don't like being in like tourist destinations anyways, but the more obvious tourist destinations in Paris, like the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. Champs-Élysées, the Moulin Rouge, like those places are like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and I don't, I don't mean to like belittle their significance, I guess, mm-hmm. but those areas are very dirty and gray and they're like filled with people trying to sell you stuff and the restaurants are horrible and it's just all people who are visiting there and like I'm sure the people who are French who are there and are like working in a tourist trap restaurant are very annoyed all day because they're just miss tourists all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so... I would love to do a segment on our spin-off podcast, I'm Thrilled, about <laughs> how to travel in Paris like a queen, which is to, like, you know, stay in places where there aren't any touristy things and, you know, eat where people who live there eat. If you learn enough French, like, people are actually really sweet. Like, I had not lots of really nice conversations with people in France. But there are, like, a few more factors at play here. So one is, going back to our whiteness, Yeah, <laughs> Westerners in Paris are going to have a, a vastly different experience from other peoples and that is not in any way because of intelligence or adaptability or anything like that it's just that western centricity is a powerful force Mm -hmm. and as an english-speaking person it is easier for me to travel yeah it's that's that's a simple truth and that is not a fair truth but that's just something that like anytime i travel anywhere it's easier if you speak english and obviously it's easier if you speak french but like people from those, like, Western European, like, everyone, ha- like, has learned English, and there's yeah. plenty of people in Japan who also speak English, obviously, like, English is just, like, a, preva- a prevailing language mm-hmm. because of Westocentricity. But, I mean, that just, and it's because of colonization and racism and an obsession with power and whiteness and all of those kinds of things. And what that can lead to is the fact that many things, including travel, are easier and more pleasant for people like us. Yeah. So it's going to be hard if you don't speak English or French well. And everything is more confusing and jarring from a cultural shock perspective. Like, us going to London is really not that different. No. You know, from where we live. Like, but going from Japan to France is very different. So mm-hmm. you're already experiencing a vast amount of culture shock. Just very different culturally. 
the languages are nowhere near the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, some French words sound like English words. Like, yeah, yeah. that's not going to happen. With You know, like, there's more of a language barrier. The transportation is very, very different. So that's, like, one factor of it is the culture shock is just heightened. Yeah. And everything is easier for... American and English people. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, ma- the world is made that way, especially in Western Europe, unfortunately. So that, combined with the 12 to 20 hour flight, combined with this cultural aspect, which is a lot of these people who are coming to travel to Paris have been dreaming about this their entire lives. Mm-hmm. There's this affinity with French culture. There's this kind of obsessive you know, air around French movies and food and style, and it's heightened specifically in Japan just for, you know, cultural reasons. Um, And so that, I think we can all kind of get where I'm going with this. Yeah. (laughs) Is that Paris Syndrome is an extreme form of culture shock, overwhelmingly affecting Japanese tourists when they realize that Paris is not as perfect as they imagined. Oh. That's what Paris Syndrome is. Wait, that's so... Yeah. How sad is that? So the disappointment and cognitive dissonance that hits these tourists who have been dreaming all their lives about Paris Mm -hmm. and, like, watching Amelie and wearing berets, it hits them so hard that they experience physical symptoms and even something as severe as depersonalization. Oh. Which, like, I heard about that and it was just, and, you know, when you break it down and you're like, okay, all of these factors of, like, the homesickness and and how long it takes and, you know, you're going to be dehydrated after a flight like that. And, like, the crazy buildup of the pop culture aspects of Paris Mm -hmm. and, like, you probably spent so much money to get there because everything's more expensive there. And it's, like, you realize you're losing all this money. Like, I get it. Like, I kind of get it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the BBC reported in 2006 when this was kind of breaking as a (laughs) phenomenon um, saying... The reality can come as a shock, an encounter with a rude taxi driver or a Parisian waiter who shouts at customers who cannot speak fluent French might be laughed off by those from other Western cultures, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. But for the Japanese, used to a more polite, helpful society um, in which voices are rarely raised in anger. So, like, again, that's the cultural difference. Like, they're just simply nicer, better people. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, it's more shocking. The experience of their dream city turning into a nightmare can simply be too much. This year alone, the Japanese embassy in Paris has had to recreate four people with a doctor or nurse to board the plane and help them get over the shock. Oh. I just, it's so sad. That is so so sad sad to me. So it's, yeah, it's officially recognized as like a condition. The Japanese embassy has a 24-hour hotline in Paris to help people with this phenomenon. And around 20 people a year are diagnosed. Um, and Mario Renew, the president of the Franco-Japanese Medical Association, something I never knew yeah. existed, said, um, let me try, <laughs> de Japonaise entre mal du pays et mai de Paris, which means the Japanese are caught between homesickness and Paris sickness. Oh. The only known cure, according to Dr. Ota, is to get on a plane and to go home. <laughs> oh. So that's what it is. That's Paris syndrome. Paris syndrome? Is that not just, like, it's, again, it's, like, lo- pretty low stakes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because you go home and you're fine. Like, yeah. it's just like, oh, that was such a bummer. But, like, that just... But that somebody, is such a bummer. It's such a bummer. Like, and I, lo- I love traveling. And it definitely put, like, slapped them some things to perspective for me of, mm-hmm. like, God, I'm so lucky. And also, like, I really take... You know, this is just, this whole episode has been just about investigating our whiteness. Yeah, really. But, like, you know, I remember when I was in Paris the last time, 
and I saw a French person who's clearly like, you know, from there and somebody who I believe was Chinese and they were speaking to each other and they were speaking to each other in English. Mm. And so, you know, it wasn't somebody who was French trying to speak to, you know, yeah. this person or somebody trying to speak Mandarin to this French person. They were both using English as this like middle yeah. ground because they both knew a little bit of it. And I think that really was like, oh, wow. Yeah. The world is so easy for me in so many ways mm-hmm. because of that. Like this is just one more way that we can kind of be aware of the privileges that we have walking through the world. Um, and I think that that's something that is just, I never thought about. I never thought about that. And I never considered that when I was traveling and just, and this concept is just, it just gets me. I just can't stop thinking about it. You know? That's so crazy. I just want everyone to have fun when they travel. I know. (laughs) Because think about that. Like you spend all that money, you take time off from work. And then you go back home and they're like, oh, how was your trip to Paris? Was it, like, so amazing? And you're like, I had to go to the hospital. Yeah. Because I was so disappointed. Yeah. I believe it. Some parts of Paris are horrible. So that's Paris syndrome. Wow. Thank you What for... did you think it was? I just thought maybe it was, like, you eat a bad baguette and... I mean, in theory, that's what it is. <laughs> in theory, that could you know? that could trigger Paris syndrome as a bad enough baguette. Yeah. The food's not as good as you thought it would be. Oh, my goodness. The people aren't as stylish and beautiful as you thought they would be. They're not nice. It's not romantic. Your boyfriend doesn't propose to you. Oh, my God. You know? I will say, I, I don't think people are expecting uh, Parisians to be nice. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think if you're expecting that, that's very wrong. Though, I have to say that most people who I met in France were very nice. And yes. I don't mean to be, like, a dick about it. But, like, usually you have to introduce yourself in French mm-hmm. and say hello and say thank you. And, like, I think that's just more of a cultural thing. Whereas people will, you know, because of that Westocentricity that we talked about, we people will go up and, like, be like, hi, do you speak English? And it's like, all right, we'll just learn how to say that in front. Like, just yeah. if somebody came up to you on the street and started speaking to you in another language. You'd be like, whoa, what? How would you react? Yeah. Like... Even if you weren't outwardly rude, you'd be like, uh, hi, I don't, I, I, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but then everyone's rude. Like, have you been to New York? Have you been to Boston? Yeah, we're really. We're fucking rude. We're really rude. Um, we're awful. <laughs> we just talked about that we for We just talked about minutes. how bad we are. Um, so. So that's that. So that's that. Those are two things. Those are two things for you, for you think guys. About. Um, I feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm really bummed out. Good. We did it. We did the thing. Yeah, that's how we know we did a successful episode. You guys know what you signed up for. <laughs> All right. So um, I hope none of you just booked a ticket to Paris. If so, uh, shoot me a DM. I'll, I'll point you to the right That's response. true. She really will. I really will. Um, but, you know, until next week, uh, we hope you stay horrified. Stay horrified. Hey, horror honeys. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at I'm Horrified Pod. Your support means the world to us. And if you're not enjoying the show, why are you still listening? Maybe you do like the show.